Good morning, I'm Leslie Thatcher, 806 on this Wednesday. It's February 21st, 30 degrees currently here in Old Town Park City. Again, mostly cloudy skies at this point. We've got 34 degrees in Heber City and on the phone with us from the ABC Forecast Center, meteorologist Thomas Keyboy. Good morning. Morning, Leslie. Happy Wednesday. We're halfway through the week. And so far this week, we've been looking at some pretty active weather. And that's going to continue through today. We still have the winter weather advisory that was issued the second half of yesterday for the Wasatch back. That's going to continue through noon today. So while we're getting a little bit of a break out there right now, we are going to be looking at more chances of snow as we continue through today and things are actually beginning to pick up a little bit more especially around portions of summit and wasatch county with even a little bit of snow it looks like around the park city area mountains so might not necessarily be down in park city just yet but i think the reason why we have the winter weather advisory only through noon today instead of throughout the entirety of the day even though we'll be holding on to a good chance through today is simply because that's temperature driven because as we go into this afternoon with that southwesterly flow we'll see temperatures climb really above the freezing mark so that means the accumulations that we could see could be limited. Now, if we see mostly cloudy skies and the snow holds on longer and we keep the temperatures a little bit cooler, then that could definitely add more snow to the equation. But between now and noon today, we definitely could see at least another few inches in Park City. While in Heber, we could be looking at times of rain and snow, given the temperatures already above freezing there. So today, a daytime high climbing to around 36 degrees in Park City, right around 40 degrees in Heber. Then as we go from tonight into tomorrow, the chance for snow will gradually begin to go down. However, it won't go away completely for our Thursday, still looking at a 20% chance of snow. So for today, good chance that we'll continue to see scattered showers. The chance for showers becomes more isolated tonight night and then we'll just be looking at a few spotty showers for our Thursday with a daytime high coming in at 36 degrees for our Thursday by Thursday night mostly clear skies the overnight low dropping into the teens going to be cold and clear but for the most part looking to be a quiet night and then Friday and Saturday we'll be looking at mostly sunny skies as high pressure begins to build in and with the high pressure building in temperatures will go on another little bit of a warming trend as will be around 40 degrees on Friday 43 degrees on Saturday and Sunday likely is going to be the warmest day out of this next stretch with the daytime high coming in at 45. I think for the most part we stay dry through the weekend but from Sunday night into Monday our next storm will start to approach and this storm is going to be coming in from the northwest which is going to be more traditional for what we would see this time of year. On Monday though we'll still see a daytime high around 40 degrees so there's a chance that we could see rain and snow more likely snow in Park City and then by Tuesday snow just looks likely as the meat of the storm system will likely be moving in and the daytime high on Tuesday will only likely top out in the upper 20s based on what I'm seeing at this point. So we do have those showers for today, potentially through tomorrow, calmer Friday through this weekend. And then we're right back to active weather as we turn the page into early next week. Leslie. OK, Thomas, thank you. And with a look in the backcountry on the phone with us from the Utah Avalanche Center, we've got Trent. Good morning, Trent. Hey, good morning. Um, is it raining there, Leslie, or do you got snowflakes coming out uh, your window? It's kind of a showery mix, let's put it that way. <laughs> Not big, nice flakes. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, th and that's sort of the name of the game out there right now. You know, we're seeing that rain snow line come up to about 7,500 feet in the mountains, uh, but it's definitely snowing up higher. Uh, and it's snowing hard in some areas, and that's going to be uh, continued through the day under this moist southwest flow, which I mean, it should be no stranger. This has been like the past like two, three days now. It's been sort of the same song and dance. Um, and that'll continue through today. Winds are moving 20, uh, 15 to 25 miles per hour across those upper elevation ridgelines. Overnight, we picked up another four to eight inches of snow, which is awesome. We need the weight. We need the water. 
Um, and uh, down low, like like you said, it's kind of a mix between rain and snow. Um, yesterday was actually fairly quiet in terms of avalanches and um, observations that were sent in. We really just had one avalanche that was reported from Upper Days Fork. A uh, backcountry rider just kicked a cornice. It rolled down the slope and triggered a, a pretty meaty slab, actually, and it failed on, on a rock, like a rock slanted rock slab. There was like four feet deep, 150 feet wide, so definitely a chunk of snow there. Um, and really our first avalanche problem for the day is going to be wind drifted snow. Um, you know, it's just so much wind and heavy snowfall has happened over the past few days. It's just created unstable avalanche conditions across many aspects and elevations. The strong wind has whipped up that new snow. It's created sensitive soft and hard slabs of wind drifted snow. And these avalanches could fail one to three feet deep on a variety of density changes within that storm snow. As you said, Leslie, out your window, it's a mix between rain and snow. While up in the mountains, we have a mix between warm and cold temperatures and that new snow could fail on any one of those warm or cold layers just within the new storm snow which again is about one to three feet deep you know drew hardesty classically said it last year um the glue is yet to dry and i really like that saying just um i would avoid the the mountains for the time being and let this all this new snow um sort of sit and settle um before really committing to any steep terrain out there um, our second avalanche problem, you know, on Valentine's Day, we've been talking about, actually, let me back up. We've been talking about north-facing deep weak layers for pretty much a month and a half now. Um, that's starting to transition away. It's becoming, it's buried so deep, four to eight feet deep. Um, it's becoming more and more unlikely to trigger that layer. But on Valentine's Day, we had the sun warm up the southerly facing slopes just a little bit, and then it snowed on top of that. And we've actually seen some avalanches break to that crust. So, you know, if you're thinking about the southeast and the south, southwest and west facing slopes, there is a crust one to three feet deep, and there is a little weak snow around that crust. It's it's variable across the terrain. So for today, I would say it's it's pretty simple and just avoid that aspect for for today. So actually, we're actually saying go ride the shady terrain uh, now and not the sunny terrain, which we were saying just not long ago. And then finally, Leslie, the rain and warm temperatures down there at 7,500 feet means we're going to see wet, loose avalanches today. And in summary, all this means we have a considerable avalanche danger across all mid and upper elevation slopes out there for really two avalanche problems, wind drifted snow and that persistent weak layer that I talked about on the sunny side. And avalanches can fail one to three feet deep and hundreds of feet wide. So be very careful out there if you're heading out into the backcountry. It's going to be dangerous, uh, I think, for the next couple of days. All right, Trent, thank you. Thank you. Stay tuned. Coming up, we'll be checking in with Snyderville Basin Water Reclamation Executive Director Mike Lures. Later on, Park City's new Transportation Director Tim Sanderson introducing himself to the Park City community. And later on, Deer Valley Avalanche Mitigation Supervisor Mark Kitka talks about the free screening happening next Tuesday of the film produced by Bodie Miller, The Paradise Paradox. Then stay tuned for The Mountain Life. Today's guest there include local resident, journalist, author, and KPCW DJ Kate Rice. She shares her memoir about surviving and thriving after stage four cancer. Then Spencer Pettit, the vice president of marketing at Good Earth Market, talks about the company's commitment to providing wholesome foods and nutritional supplements. All of that coming up between 9 and 10.
Well, a bill in support of bringing a Major League Baseball team to Salt Lake City could have ramifications here in the Park City lodging industry. KPCW's Parker Malatesta reports. During a meeting with Park City Businesses Tuesday, Park City Chamber President and CEO Jennifer Wesselhoff expressed concerns about the Utah Legislature's efforts to lure Major League Baseball to Salt Lake City. Wesselhoff said a bill in the works was initially going to include a 2.5% transient room tax increase for seven surrounding counties, including Summit and Wasatch. That would virtually double our 3% current TRT. Um, obviously, those seven counties who were being asked to burden the majority of that that cost, we were not very happy about that. Um, and we've been working really hard over the last two weeks to try to make that more equitable. The Major League Baseball vision for the state is really well-liked by leadership. The bill has not been made public yet, but Wesselhoff said they're now expecting to see a 1.5% TRT increase across the state. The transient room tax is charged on stays in hotels, Airbnbs, trailer courts, and campgrounds. 70% of TRT revenue currently goes to the chamber, with the rest going to Summit County. Two-thirds of the funds must be spent on marketing, with the rest allocated to projects like trails and open space acquisition. Summit County Manager Shane Scott said the county's team is monitoring the bill. He said there could be a provision that allows corporate retreats to be exempt from the potential new TRT tax. We don't want to be the most expensive option when it comes to, to holding these groups. So if we could keep them out of that for a, a block of you know rooms that, that's, that would be very impactful to, to a local establishment, not to mention our restaurants and all the other uh, amenities that we try to provide for, for groups like that. Scott said he expects counties far from Salt Lake to lobby against any statewide tax increase. According to the Salt Lake Tribune, the legislation would involve issuing hundreds of millions of dollars worth of bonds, essentially borrowing the money. That would ultimately be repaid by the revenue generated through the new TRT tax. Utah Governor Spencer Cox threw his weight behind the idea Thursday at his monthly press conference. We have some of the lowest taxes in the United States on hotels. Most states have higher taxes there. So the, the argument is that there's a little bit of room. Most of those taxes are actually paid by people outside the state of Utah. So that's one area where we're having discussions and negotiation where I'm open to it. I'm not open to using general fund money, writing a check to subsidize these at all. Last week, the Larry H. Miller Company announced plans to invest $3.5 billion for a baseball stadium and surrounding entertainment district in an industrial area west of downtown Salt Lake City. USA Today reports Salt Lake and Nashville are the two frontrunners for the MLB's 2030 expansion. Officials are still waiting to see the exact language of the bill, which has yet to be released. The Utah legislative session ends March 1st. Parker Malatesta, KPCW News. And we do have an update. That bill supporting the Major League Baseball stadium was made public yesterday evening. It includes a 1.6% transit room tax increase statewide. You can find out more at sltrib.com. In the studio now with an update on our flush index and wastewater surveillance, the director of the Snyderville Basin Water Reclamation District, Mike Lures. Good morning. Good morning, Leslie. So let's start with the uh, the flush index, which basically just helps us determine how many people we got in town. Right. So for the month of January, we estimated that there were 266,484 visitor nights uh, for the month. That's about a three and a half percent decrease from a year ago, January. 
So uh, starting off the year with just a little bit down, but not too much. Okay, interesting though, with uh, maybe just a smaller Sundance too, huh? Smaller Sundance, and uh, even though we have you know pretty decent snow this year, it's not what we had last year. Yeah. All right. And then you also measure the wastewater coming out for just uh, what COVID and flu and things like that. So currently we uh, monitor for the genetic material associated with COVID uh, twice a week at both of our treatment facilities. And uh, here in the Snyderville Basin area, at both sites, the uh, levels still are elevated, meaning they're a little bit higher than what would you might expect. Mm -hmm. Uh, they're also elevated in the Jordan L and Heber City area. Uh, statewide, they're starting to come down, uh, but uh, uh, you know this is something we've been doing since April 2020, and uh, the CDC uh, has informed us through the health department that uh, we'll be continuing to do this for some time uh, into the future. Okay, and that's all we're measuring for at this point. That's correct. Uh, the genetic material associated with the SARS-CoV-2 virus or, or COVID. Uh, is all we are monitoring for, but uh, we call this wastewater-based epidemiology and uh, methodology uh, for non-COVID uh, uh, targets is being perfected, uh, and we anticipate working uh, with the CDC on monitoring for influenza A, influenza B, RSV, and uh, other things that uh, may be of interest to the local health authorities. So. Wastewater-based epidemiology uh, is here to stay, and uh, we anticipate it to uh, be expanded for all kinds of various things in the future. Yeah, so is that information then sent to all of the county health departments? Yeah, so across the state, there are, I believe, 30-some-odd wastewater treatment plants uh, that monitor for COVID currently. All that information is sent to the state health department, health, health department and you can go online and they have a dashboard that shows results for your particular area. And what does it take? Just a test tube and, and just in the microscope or how? how no, it's, it's a little bit more than that. Uh, actually, the, the procedure is just as if you were being tested yourself for COVID. So genetic material is collected, it's sequenced, uh, goes through the, um, uh, the, the, the laboratory procedure that uh, would be used for yourself if you went into, say, a, a physician's office and were tested. So we actually use the identical same type of, of testing. Since it's coming from wastewater, there's a couple extra procedures to kind of clean it up to get an accurate uh, reading. All right. Um, and they are accurate, huh? Uh, yes, they're uh, accurate. Now, since we are monitoring wastewater, uh, what we cannot do is say, hey, genetic material uh, that we're seeing is on the elevated uh, side of things, meaning it's a little bit higher than what we've seen. We can't say that that is directly proportional to say, you know, 800 people having COVID. It's not that precise, but certainly when, uh, when we report that we're seeing elevated levels here across the Snyderville Basin area, Hebrew area, Jordanelle area, um, it's pretty clear that uh, COVID is uh, alive and well in our area. Okay, so how is it that you provide that uh, material? Uh, our staff collects it and uh, delivers it to the uh, state health department. Mm, okay, and that's done weekly? It's twice weekly. Twice yeah. weekly. Yeah. All right. Um, you also noted just that the flows, we mentioned this briefly about Sundance, so you're seeing the, the wastewater flows um, reducing over time, huh? 
Yeah, so pre-COVID, and I'm talking, say, 2016, 17, 18 time period, uh, we had a pretty consistent uh, you know, flow during um, the Sundance period of time. Co uh, then the pandemic hit, and then, say, 21 was still down. 22 was about identical to 22. 23, we saw a little bit of a bump up, but for 24, we saw a reduction. Um, matter of fact, 24 was the lowest number we've seen uh, all the way back through um, 2016. Uh, overall, if you kind of average the numbers before, um, say, pandemic and post-pandemic, there's about a 25% reduction in wastewater flows. And did we, or is that what we're seeing in visitation? Well, well, visitation is not uh, down 25%. Uh, again, as we just reported for the just this last month, we saw a 3.5%. Last year, we probably saw about a, I think it was, uh, what, around 10% reduction, 15% reduction. So we are seeing a larger decrease in flows during um, Sundance than we are as a whole uh, for the remainder portion of the year. Okay, um, we're still talking about PFAS compounds. Tell us more about this. I mean, we, we know that they're not good for us, and at this point, I don't know that you can treat them, right? Well, so let's take a step back here. We get a lot of questions about PFAS compounds, microplastics, pharmaceuticals, and in wastewater, all those things show up uh, in the water that we receive and, and treat. Um, the impact of these compounds is relatively new to science. What I mean by that is we are just now developing laboratory procedures to even monitor these compounds at very low levels. So when the question arises, hey, are these things harmful to us? It's really difficult to answer because there's thousands of different types of pharmaceuticals, different PFAS compounds, but you know the laboratory work that has been done on, on lab uh, animals it clearly shows that some of these compounds are not good for us, but we're a long way from being able to say X, you know, amount of PFAS, plastics, or micro uh, or um, pharmaceuticals is bad for us. Um, so there's a lot of science to to, to be learned. Uh, we are involved in it pretty heavily because, again, we are seeing a whole cocktail of pharmaceuticals coming from all the various drugs that. We all use in the area. Microplastics are coming from our synthetic uh, ski clothing, and PFAS compounds are coming from everything from our drinking water to products that are being used. So we anticipate being required to remove pretty much all these items sometime in the future. EPA's just deciding just what level do we need to treat to. Um, but to answer your question about treatment, we have conducted some bench and pilot studies. And we do, in fact, know how to remove all the <clears throat> all these compounds. Is it cheap? No, but we, we can remove them. We can, yes. um, but we haven't implemented that. We have not yet. Uh, if we were to remove pharmaceuticals and PFAS compounds, you know, would probably add about ten dollars to the monthly um, wastewater bill. Currently, uh, we are currently removing about ninety plus percent of the microplastics due to the fact that we have an advanced wastewater treatment facility. But uh, to, to remove the pharmaceuticals and PFAS compounds, um, you know, that would take additional treatment technology um, added on to what we already have. Hmm. Um, and what do we know that that would do to any downwater 
source? I mean, fish, well, people? Well, certainly we've, we've conducted quite a bit of uh, research over the years on the impact of, say, estrogens on the male trout uh, in our local streams. And we know that some of these pharmaceuticals, especially the estrogens, can feminize the male fish. So, uh, you know, it's important that we uh, protect our local fish populations. Uh, I might add that there are currently no state or federal regulations for us to even monitor for these things, much less remove them and study the impact. So we're, we're being pretty progressive here, but uh, due to the fact that we discharge into these very small mountain streams with sensitive trout species, uh, it's only a matter of time before we'll need to uh, remove these compounds. Hmm. Yeah, and again, eat the fish, and then you've just got more of the estrogen. Right. That yeah, it's sell. it's <laughs> it, it, you know the pharmaceuticals and the compounds end up in the fish, and then the eagles eat the fish, and then it's passed through the food chain. Plus, the water flows downstream to the next user, uh, and I say user, I'm, I mean us humans. Uh, so the water's used over and over, and uh, we're just passing these compounds uh, downstream to others. Okay, uh, let's see. You've also got some uh, rehab work happening on Homestead Road. We still call these manholes. Right. So in the Jeremy Ranch area on Homestead Road, uh, we'll be working this week on a series of manholes that we're rehabilitating, meaning that we're um, fixing the inside of them up. Uh, and uh, it'll impact traffic, but there should not be any need for detours. So just kind of keep an eye out for our workers, especially in the wintertime. And we want to keep our folks safe and not have a car slide into our uh, our uh, work site. So uh, Homestead Road, we should be able to wrap that up this week. Yeah, so what kind of work are we talking about? Because I know that when we redo roads, we see kind of a, a cement casing almost rebuilt, huh? So these manholes uh, are being are, are corroded uh, inside the wastewater system. It's not unusual to have corrosive gases that actually form sulfuric acid, and that reacts to the concrete manholes and, and, and starts uh, deteriorating them. So we put a synthetic liner on the inside of these manholes uh, to stop that uh, corrosion. Hmm. Okay. Anything else you want to mention? Uh, just real quick, Leslie, uh, I want to remind your uh, listeners that, uh, hey, one thing that you can do to help lower your water bill is to uh, put a little food coloring in the tank of your commode. Do not flush it. Just let it sit there, and if that colored water appears in the bottom part of the commode, you have a leaky commode because a lot of times commodes leak and you don't really hear it and you don't know it's happening. So a real quick little test that's really cheap to do is, again, put food coloring in the tank, let it sit, sit there, and if the uh, water, colored water appears in the bottom part, then you got a leaky commode. Okay, the color is showing up in the right. bowl itself. And you know, mm. you, you can. This is one of these things you can generally go to Home Depot and buy a little kit to fix it yourself, or obviously call a plumber. Okay, Mike, thank you. Thank you, Leslie. Mike Lures is the executive director of the Snyderville Basin Water Reclamation District. You're listening to the local news hour on KPCW. Joining me now in the studio, I have Park City's new transportation director, Tim Sanderson. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, Leslie. <clears throat> so start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and, and why you were looking for a job in Park City. Sure. Ed. And first of all, thank you for uh, inviting me here. It's a, it's a real pleasure to, to be he just in Park City and, and a real pleasure to be here as well. Um, I've, uh, uh, I, I've been in uh, uh, Park City now for about two or, two or three weeks, or at least in my job for about two or three weeks, and, and just com completely, uh, it exceeds my expectations for really how beautiful it is and, and how welcoming everybody has, uh, has been. Uh, um, from what I understand, we have some transportation issues that they want me to take care of. Um, I've been in, uh, I've been in 
transportation for uh, well over 30 years. Um, I started as a, a transit operator uh, up in Winnipeg, Canada, um, and uh, just progressively worked my way through a number of different transit systems and, and different positions. Um, I've worked in uh, Nashville, uh, Des Moines, Iowa, um, uh, Winnipeg, uh, Canada, uh, and most recently I was the general manager of the transit system in Lethbridge, Alberta. Um, which is a, uh, a city of about 120, 150,000 up in Canada. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've been doing transit for a long time and, and different transportation functions, and, uh, and it's really in my blood. All right, so what, do you have a dual citizenship then? Um, I, I have a, uh, my, my wife is an American, so ah, okay. I, I can move back and forth. Move back and forth yeah. then. So why Park City? Just, uh, just someplace new or? Oh my God, I, I'm looking out at the view right now and I'm thinking this is the greatest opportunity that I, that I've ever had. Um, uh, you know, after, after working in, in, in larger systems, uh, and, and, and running other systems, um, it, it was, uh, really appealing to come to, um, a city that has such unique challenges. Um, and such a, an engaged and uh, enthusiastic and, and passionate um, citizenry um, in order to uh, in, in order to do something. Uh, um, in other transit cities, we hear complaints about empty buses driving around in circles, and it's so nice not to hear those complaints anymore. And and that the complaints are how do we how do we activate transit? How do we how do we be innovative with transportation? And and that's really my uh, my cup of tea. Oh, I remember the letters to the editor from Fred Pretner, though. He used to complain about the empty buses, <laughs> but that was back in the eighties. So. Um, you're from Canada. I know that the, that country does an incredible job plowing and blowing the snow from roads. And the way it works is that they have a truck follow them. So it's just kind of a one-stop operation. Whereas Park City plows and then comes back in with uh, and then does. So I'm just wondering, do you do transportation differently as well? Uh, you know, I think it's unique for, for really uh, every different city and, and, and a different environment as well. Um, I think... One of the things in uh, in Canada, um, just the uh, the culture is much different. I think around public transportation, um, walking and 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 not not using your personal automobile quite so much. Um, a little bit of that has to do because the gas prices are you know two to three times as much as they are down here. Uh, but it's just also a, a cultural thing, the way the cities were designed and and, and everything like that. So the challenges are are different, um, but. Uh, um, at, at the root, they're, they're still the same because they're, they're, they're still about uh, um, the ability to have people move through the city and, and uh, improve their quality of life. Hmm. Okay, I heard the Canadian accident. I was going to say, say out or about. Yeah, I just did it. The, the A's will, will come. <laughs> yeah. um, so I guess um, after getting your feet wet here, I mean, you say you've been here all of two and a half weeks. What's, what's at the top of your to-do list? Uh, you, you know, a lot of the uh, a lot of the uh, um, we, the, the community has done a really good job of uh, of establishing what the challenges are, um, and they've also done a really good job of of taking a look at a lot of the different solutions. Um, I think it, it's really um, again engaging the community and 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 just coming up with that strategy and actually just doing some doing something and and going down that path. Um, and and trying to make some some easy wins to start off with, and uh, um, and then focus on on some of the larger 
the larger items that are there. Again, I've been here for two and a half weeks. Do I know exactly what those things are? No, but I think just really a collaboration with community stakeholders and um, and, and, and really just taking a look at all the work that's already been done um, and, and just prioritizing and, and being strategic about our improvements. Yeah, so as you know, um, Park City is a box canyon, right? We've got two ways in and, and you know, just not that other exit out of the, the canyon. So. I guess what kind of innovative solutions are there to kind of figure out how to get traffic in and out, especially when residents have been pretty adamant about not widening 248? Well, I, and I've uh, I've really been keeping my eye on teleportation technology, uh, just to see if we can if we can take a person and move them instantly from one place to the other. And really, until that starts, what we're going to have to do is is find that balance between a capital investment on 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 something that that isn't roads. That's that's not something that I, I would really want to do. Um, and then the operating investment that 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 continuing. Um, investment in, in whether it's it's public transit or road or, or path way maintenance or or gondola maintenance or or, or train maintenance whatever the whatever that 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 is and and just ensuring that that really we've got that right mix where we're not overbuilding something um, and then not having enough um, resources to operate it or vice versa that we're we're just operating everything and we could we could really do it much more efficiently with some capital improvements. Hmm. Um, Park City Municipal has relaxed its parking regulations for all new development. Basically, fewer parking spots are, are now required for vehicles, thinking that future generations won't want to, won't need one, won't want to use a car. I mean, is that realistic thinking? I, I think it's already happening. Um, I, I, again, if I take a look back uh, many years ago to to when I was turning 16 and and, and I was uh, approaching my driver's license, it was the most exciting thing in the world to, to get a driver's license and to get a car and to do all those sorts of things. Um, and all my friends were in the same were in the same ballpark, and really everybody I knew. Um, nowadays, uh, I mean, my, my children they didn't even get their driver's licenses until their their uh, late teens, uh, early twenties. Um, and uh, uh, working in Ann Arbor, that's uh, w with a really large college crowd. Um, what I found is that given other alternatives, um, especially the younger generation, they'll, they'll glom onto, uh, on, onto public transportation or walking or scooters or, or any kind of alternative things. The, the allure of a personal automobile um, just isn't there with them um, as it is with us. That being said, it's a real uphill battle because the, uh, um, the personal automobile definitely has its, its hooks into us. Yeah, and I guess that I, I'm going to say that may not be the typical, maybe it's the typical younger Park City resident, but I mean, people, they want to go down to, to Moab. They want to go ski uh, Snow Basin, um, and you got to have a car to get there. I mean, there's no bus there. Sure, and, and I think that there's, uh, again, it's going to be a long time before we ever get to a place where we don't have personal cars, but um, uh, I, I think if we can get to a world where rather than having three, um, maybe you only need one, um, and uh, um, or maybe, again, you, you, you want to go to Moab, uh, rent a car for the weekend or, 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 or something like that. There's a bunch of different options um, rather, than, uh, uh, rather than having a personal car, and, 
and, and it's more than just uh, the traffic that it caused. It's also just the the uh, the footprint of parking um, for them as well, um, because especially if you have more than one car, that second car, I mean, it's sitting on valuable real estate and, and taking up space, um, um, and it may only move, you know, for 20 minutes a day, if even. Yeah. Um, when you mentioned capital cost, what what does the city have then? I mean, is it just basically a transportation fund that you'll have to work with? Or do we have to start looking at bonding or tax increases? Again, two and a, two and a half weeks. So I, I think the, the, those are all great questions. I, I, again, I, I'm just not in a position, I think, to, to really start looking like that. Um, I, the one good thing, again, there's been a lot of great planning in Park City. Um, there is a transportation fund that is that is healthy. Um, uh, and and that's, a, uh, that's, that's a great attribute. Um, uh, finding resources and having resources is, is really one of the toughest things. And, and having a lot of that stuff in place make, makes the job a lot easier. Okay. Um, did you, were you here in, in time to see how the uh, transportation system worked with the Deer Valley World Cup? I was, yeah. I was, was up there a couple of nights uh, just watching how everything went and, um, and, and also enjoying the event a, a little bit as well, which it was a great event. And um, it, it, was, uh, it was quite a ballet um, watching uh, the, the, the buses intermingle with the vehicles and, 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 and the passengers. Um, uh, of course, there's uh, some things uh, taking a look at it that we can improve in order to make it more efficient. But um, the, the thing I think that was really um, uh, heartwarming to me was to see the amount of people that, that did choose to use transit um, rather than taking their, their own cars. And, and it's just that really great foundation to build on. Mm. Yeah, and then when you see, what, 5,000 people trying to get on a bus at 9 o'clock at, at night, um, that just there weren't buses there. So again, when you start um, looking at capital costs, I mean, you just have to bring on more buses so that they're ready to go. I mean, because then, then people will go, Gosh, I'll ride the bus. That was easy. Uh, absolutely, and uh, I, again, good good examples I can think of my past career. Again, w was was uh, um, running service after a uh, Michigan Wolverines football game or a Tennessee Titans football game, and the Iowa State Fair. Um, uh, that's what. Uh, public transit really excels in is taking a large amount of uh, people and, and moving them a, a distance all at once. Um, and uh, again, we just uh, we just need to leverage it a little bit more and it'll get better and better and, and more appealing and more appealing. Yeah, well, locally, you can go down to a Ute game yeah. next fall and I, have a look and I'm, see how they do it because they I, do it really well as well. I'm going to have to change my jersey. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, anything else you want to want to tell? Our listeners? Uh, you know, just a couple of things that we've got going on right now. Um, one is we've got uh, the bike ped survey um, uh, that we would encourage everybody to uh, to participate in. Uh, you can get it at engageparkcity.org. Um, and then there's a community open house on the 27th at the Yarrow from 5:30 to 7:30, and that's on the uh, on the act, sorry on active transportation um, community discussion. So um, both of those things, I'd uh, um, I'd uh, love to engage with the community. Okay, drinking from a fire hose, Tim. Good luck. Thank you so much, Leslie. <laughs> All right, and get a congratulations and welcome. Thank you. That's Tim Sanderson, again, Park City Municipal's new transportation director. You're listening to the local news hour on KPCW. Taking a look at some local news now, four Coville residents say emergency crews have a hard time finding their homes because of the road's name. KPCW's Connor Thomas reports that could change soon. 
Chalk Creek Road heads northeast out of town and temporarily bends due north before heading back east to Wyoming. During that due north stretch, just for a tenth of a mile, it's called Industrial Park Road. Resident Destiny Blonquist says it wasn't always that way, but she doesn't know why the name was changed. She's one of four homeowners on that short stretch of Industrial Park, which, for the record, most call Chalk Creek anyway. The four of them are petitioning the Summit County Council to change it back. My main reason of signing the petition is, is after seeing an ambulance go up and down um, and then having to stop the ambulance to give them directions. That's where my concern is at. The petition says everyone from delivery drivers to ambulances have a hard time finding the houses because their addresses say Industrial Park Road. People will end up on North Industrial Park, which tees into Chalk Creek before it bends back toward Wyoming. The residents say that's where Industrial Park should stop. Chalk Creek, they note, doesn't have a single signal or stoplight on it from Colville to Wyoming. It's a county road, too. Most of Industrial Park is a Colville City Road. The county council will decide about the name change 6 p.m. Wednesday at its weekly meeting down the street at the Summit County Courthouse on Colville's Main Street. Connor Thomas, KPCW News. Well, Main Street area businesses say that Park City's management of the key stretch during the Sundance Film Festival greatly improved from last year. KPCW's Parker Malatesta has more about that. Park City moved back to two-way traffic on Main Street for Sundance in January after a one-way flow was criticized for causing gridlock during the 2023 festival. At the historic Park City Alliance monthly meeting Tuesday, several business owners applauded the city's management of Main Street during the event, including Alyssa Densley with the restaurant 501 on Main. I think traffic, which is everybody's concern, um, especially when we are in it and contributing to it, I think it was a fantastic job, not just on Main Street, but getting to Main Street. It was as though you guys were there working with us. Um, if there was an issue, we created solutions. Um, you, it just really felt as though the city was involved in this year's event. HPCA President Monty Coates agreed. However, he offered some criticism of the Richardson Flat bus route servicing Main Street and Deer Valley Resort. He didn't quite have enough capacity, I think, a little bit there on for, for skiers and film people. Um, the buses were packed and standing. And I, I felt bad for the skiers that packed on there because they were standing there with their skis and it was standing room only. So you might have needed to add this little capacity to accommodate both those groups. Park City is considering a pedestrian-only option for Main Street for the 2025 Sundance Film Festival. The City Council typically approves plans for the event near the end of the year. Parker Malatesta, KPCW News. A free film screening and community panel discussion is happening Tuesday, this coming Tuesday from 6 to 9 p.m. on the 27th at the Jim Santee Auditorium. The film's executive director is Olympian Bodie Miller. It also features longtime Deer Valley Ski Patrol member Mark Kitka, who joins me now in the studio. Good morning. Good morning. So maybe, Mark, start by telling us about the film. We'll try and get the, the trailer put up um, as part of this interview. But what's it about? Yeah, so it's a, it um, addresses um, mental health in mountain communities and the struggles um, surrounding mental health um, within mountain towns. And it kind of focuses on Eagle County, Colorado. Um, and it has a kind of a, a broader reach um, because we, uh, they partnered with Altera Mountain Company um, and they interviewed me for the film. And um, yeah, it's pretty cool, very interesting. So you, you've been, I think Park City though, or Deer Valley for what, 
15, 16 years? Yeah, this is my 16th winter at Deer Valley. All right, so they came just a little bit further west to, to do some more interviews with other Altera mountain towns? Yeah, so Altera reached out to the patrols to see if anybody wanted to talk about their kind of their story and experience um, with being a first responder at the resorts. Hmm, okay, so uh, it sounds like you were involved both on screen and behind the scenes. How so? Uh, I was I was interviewed um, on screen, um, kind of. I was kind of the first responder in the film, and I talk about um, a scene that I was on that um, I struggled with and had some challenges with, and uh, just wanted to share my story. Okay, and that being just a, an, an accident or a death or something that... Yeah, so it was an accident um, many, many years ago um, that I struggled with mentally and had some struggles. Um, and I, you know, felt that my story could help other people who might be struggling mentally with, that, with those challenges as well. Hmm, I mean, because you didn't feel like you did what you could or I mean what what was the the struggle as a result of that um it was more after after the fact um I um got hung up on some things and uh mentally um I was struggling and kind of on the classic path of of um kind of downslide and uh ended up in ended up in jail um because of it and um so you know i felt that my story was pretty powerful and and people could learn from my mistakes and that's kind of the the whole focus of my piece hmm. all right so altera mountain one of the the funders of the film um, why, why is that um altera got involved um and i um i think that podium pictures reached out to them and mm -hmm. altera got involved um because that's a kind of a, a important part of Altera is um, supporting the communities that they're in. And I think that, that you know, they wanted to be involved and uh, help support the community. And, and the reason we're showing this film is to kind of help support the community and destigmatize mental health and um, help everybody within Park City. Yeah, and something that you kind of hear about in the, in the trailer is, you know, Park City, again, one of those kind of resort paradise communities. What is the, what does the film say about that? I know that you expect everything to be happy and, you know. Yeah, there's a there's a really good quote from, um, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, from a doctor in the film, and he says that people move to mountain towns expecting to, you know, for all their problems of the past to go away, and, and he says that, you, you, they arrive and they think it's going to go away, but ultimately, like, until they address the fundamental issue, it doesn't, nothing goes away, like, it comes back to haunt you, essentially, is what he says, and I'm pretty sure that's in the trailer as well, so. Hmm, yeah, kind of running from things that they weren't willing to, to cope with. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah, um, and certainly we, we work in a place where people come to have a good time, party a lot. Um, I think, do we kind of get caught up in that you know it's like hey this is hard this is a hard life you were probably up at 5 a.m you know headed toward the mountain yeah correct yeah. yeah i think i think people get here and they 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 see that party you know lifestyle of the people who come to vacation here and they get caught up in it and you know it just leads to some some roads that are a little rough i guess yeah, yeah. um one of the things that i did see in the trailer that um it's really a growing crisis in um mountain towns suicide rates as much as two to four times the national rate of suicide i mean does the film explain why um they i'm trying to remember it's been a, a while since i've seen the film i watched it at the premiere um i think that 
you know, the the suicide rates in mountain communities is, is higher because of there's there's so many different struggles of, of wage gaps and housing and you know trying to survive in a place where people come to vacation and you know and being a seasonal worker in those places is, is pretty difficult yeah yeah um and then deer valley is is kind of hosting the screening and has invited the entire staff um as well as the wider community last i heard from your marketing department was that 70 percent of it had been filled you know already sold out do you do you have any updates on that i i don't i think yeah last i heard was the same was 70 percent fill um at the theater there so okay well Tickets are free. A link to reserve them is um, on the event calendar at DeerValley.com. So in addition to the, the film screening, um, it sounds like you're kind of created, or Deer Valley has kind of created an, an open house for the community and in the community room. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so we, we have um, resources throughout the community that will be on site. Um, and the film can spark some emotions and we wanted to have some people on site to who could address those emotions with people and we also wanted to showcase the resources within the community for those people that are out there struggling um and yeah just let them know that they're not alone and we're here to help and we're here to talk and we want to help you okay so again the uh, this event schedule six o'clock the open house again opens there again in that community room across from the theater uh, the film starts at about 6.30. Um, it'll be over by about 8. And then uh, you've got a community panel put together. This is going to be uh, moderated by uh, professional ski mountaineer and an activist for equality, Caroline Gleick. You also have some panelists on that, including yourself? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so we have Ron Jackenthal from Live Like Sam and uh, Christy Fay from Park City Behavioral Health and then myself on the panel. Okay, so what were your what were what will your message then be? I think my message to people is, you know, you're not alone. Um, if you're struggling out there, like, ask for help, reach out for help, and and two to the greater community. If you see someone struggling, don't wait for them to ask for help. Reach out to them and and just ask them and try to coax them to, you know, we're here to help each other. This is a community where we all need to be there for each other. Okay. Anything else you want to tell us? That's it. Okay. Hey, thanks for coming by. Thank you. Well, the Kimball Junction Starbucks is now Utah's sixth store to file for unionization. KPCW's Connor Thomas reports. As part of the largest single-day filing since Starbucks employees began unionizing in 2021, workers at Kimball Junction's location have petitioned to join Starbucks Workers United. The baristas at the location on New Park next to the World Market were sporting union pins Tuesday morning, their first day going public with the union effort. They've joined 20 other stores in 13 states to demand better working conditions. They say they see common problems around the country, such as inconsistent hours and short staffing. An employee of four years, Kaylee O'Grady, a shift supervisor at Kimball Junction, told KPCW their store hit record sales last year despite the staffing challenges. People don't want to work in that, you know? We, we have a hard time holding on to people. Putting more work in the hands of fewer people, employees wrote to CEO Loxman Narasiman, shows, quote, a habit of prioritizing sales and profits over partner safety. O'Grady said the Kimball store has about 15 employees, many of whom can't or don't want to quit. I like my job. I love my coworkers. Um, one of my managers is amazing, so wonderful. And we, we don't want to leave because of the, the pay or because of the working conditions. We 
We just want to improve them. They told KPCW the majority of Kimball Junction employees signed union cards, except for a couple of new hires. That met the 30% threshold required to petition the National Labor Relations Board for a formal election. Next, the NLRB will direct Starbucks to hold union elections at the 21 newly filed stores, where employees will officially decide whether to unionize. Almost 400 Starbucks stores in 42 states and the District of Columbia have voted to unionize since 2021. There are about 9,000 corporate-owned stores nationwide. O'Grady's store is the sixth in Utah to petition for a union. The rest are along the Wasatch Front. Four of them officially voted to join Starbucks Workers United. But when you have the collective voice of multiple people and like just about like 10,000 people coming to a company and demanding like better working conditions, they are being put in a position where they have to listen to us, you know? Uh, it's inspiring. Courts have ruled Starbucks engaged in union busting since the wave of filings began. That includes everything from firing pro-union workers to illegally withholding raises from union employees without negotiating with the union. Starbucks Workers United says federal judges have ruled the company has committed over 400 violations of national labor law. No such violation has been found at Kimball Junction, but a flyer did appear in Starbucks' back room once word got out about unionization. O'Grady says the flyer claimed employees could get paid less if they joined a union. In theory, that's true, but only if the union negotiates lower wages with the company. In reality, the numbers show union members in the U.S. make more than their non-union counterparts. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, in 2023, unionized full-time workers made 16% more than those not in a union. Unionized women, black, and Latino workers made 19%, 22%, and 32% more respectively. For O'Grady, it goes back to the idea that there's strength in numbers and in collective bargaining. Connor Thomas, KPCW News.